Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we're going to use Musashi's Dokodo as a reflection point. This is a less well-known text compared to the Book of Five Rings. It is believed to have been written in the year 1645 and approximately one week before Musashi's death. The title translated is often something akin to The Path Walked Alone or The Way of Self-Reliance. I remember, first off, one of my teachers was asked when he would write his own book, you know, he tended to do things quite differently from how most people did, and it would seem that he would be motivated to write. Or at least we were all looking forward to something of that nature. And his response was at first surprising, but it totally made sense. It was that he wasn't ready to write down in words what he thought Aikido was or should be not in any kind of book format that would be some sort of summary of his view. And while there's no way I can directly correlate this position to Musashi's, I think it's fitting that this text is often considered a summary of his art and that he finally wrote it one week before he died. I also think its nature is quite interesting because I think much of what Musashi was doing and thinking was counter to what everyone else was doing around him. Of course, from earlier podcasts, you know, I, I believe that that's just a f philosophical probability of masterhood, that at some level you're going to have to be swimming against the crowd, isolated from the crowd, and you can kind of see that in Musashi's text. Even his style of two, using two swords compared to one, the way he critiques the other arts kind of on Moss, they're they're all kind of the same to him, and they're all doing something slightly incorrect. And one of the things that Musashi was very critical of was the kind of flowery, complex explanations that often go with East Asian martial arts. For him, in some way, 
it showed a kind of ignorance and was used by people who did not truly understand. So in some of his other texts, he's quite clear about that, but you can still pick it up even in the popular text of Gorin no Sho, the, the Book of Five Rings. And then even here, in this text, it's basically made up of 21 sentences written out as a list. And that's quite a statement when this is your life's work summary. I think you see it in Musashi's artwork as well. There's a, there's a deep, deeply felt appreciation for the profound profoundness of simplicity that somehow mastery must end in simplicity. That it shows the deepest level of understanding. And I think that's what he's going with here. I also think the title is very interesting. Um, and again speaks to the, the sociological tendency that the master is not one of the crowd. And of course, this is quite different from today, where popularity denotes correctness or accuracy. Of course, that's not true, but that's the state of things today. So on one hand, on the one hand, I think Musashi was talking about just this sociological tendency that he experienced that if you're going to pursue something deeply, deep enough to master it, you can't follow the crowd. But I think there's also an often overlooked fact that we allow to slip past us in our appreciation for the masters of, of old. For example, and in, in, in particular, a lot of people come to crafts or arts or skills and have community play a big role. And yet, the masters of old, not just Musashi here, but... I cannot think of one who hasn't said something akin to this, that the path, whatever it is that you're on, is often quite lonely. That it's almost the opposite of community. At least on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, it allows often for an ego reconciliation to occur by which the practitioner can have fuller relationships, more meaningful, deep relationships. But nevertheless, tradition after tradition issue the caveat that you better be prepared to practice alone and to experience loneliness 
and to in some ways always be separate from the group. So I think Musashi's title is quite fitting in that regard. So what I want to do here is just read each statement and then see what comes to mind. Number one, I did not infringe upon the way of successive generations. Let's stop. What Musashi is talking about here is that as a man of his culture and of his history, there was a holding that there were universal principles and by such they were considered true across space and across time. And as such, one thing cannot be thought to have worked here, but not there, or now, but not then. This is quite contrary to today's martial arts training, where there is this idea that things have evolved and that things of the past were in some way untrue. Of course, this is modernity's use of or the influence of Darwinian theory, it goes way deep in our culture. And today people just think like it, with it. The entire technological revolution is itself based on the assumption that there's no end to technology and that everything is an improvement upon what has already passed. There's an overlooking of the fact that human beings are not machines. And there's even an, an overlooking of the fact that certain things that were produced technologically in the past can even outperform things we hold today. I remember seeing a show... I think it was on the Discovery Channel, and they were doing um, comparisons of old engines versus modern engines in automobiles, and the older engines were outperforming. I know recently I was at the range training, and a lot of law enforcement officers carry modern polymer pistols. And they have their place, they're lighter, generally speaking, and carrying them on duty is much more forgiving. But the assumption is that these are fine or finer weapons than what we had in the past. And to my right there at the range was a guy who fixed up old cowboy guns. And you could tell 
when you held them side by side and you shot them side by side, that the modern polymer pistol is not an advancement on firearms technology. It's a compromise with, an adi- with a different agenda, one mainly of profit. And many things are like this. The goal has changed. So the goal held in the past upon which a given technology or upon which a given assumption was made was different from the one we hold today. And people who ignorantly apply Darwinian thinking will go back and ignore the fact that they changed the question or changed the purpose or the environment when they run their comparison analysis. And this is how you get things like um, what at one time was clearly considered a specialization of combat. Let's just take Newaza being held up as the end all. We ignored the fact that the environment has changed and the questions have changed. There's no weapons. There's rules. There's referees. There's partitioned environments. There's there's startings and stoppings. Reasonably, what we should do is hold the same question and assumption and apply it across time. This was done in Musashi's time, and from that, universal principles were derived. So what he's saying is, as unique as his way may have been, And as critical as he was of other arts, he felt himself to be in alignment with principles that were deemed true and universally true in preceding ages. In some way then, what he's saying without saying is that the arts that he was critical of are being criticized precisely because they deviated from these universal principles. I've seen something similar said in some modern-day Shihan. Um, Nishio Sensei said something like this in the introduction of his book on Aikido, also a kind of summary of his understanding of Aikido, where he said that Aikido cannot exist without addressing the questions and holding the same similar answers that is that are held by other buddha obviously as with all authors something would not be said 
and it would go unsaid if everyone was already in agreement. So for Nishio Sensei to say it, it's because that is not the case where he was looking. And it must not have been the case by a wide margin. I think I see this kind of thinking um, as wrong as I just said it is to take a specialization of combat, Nawaza, and universalize it by warping without acknowledging the environment in which it's going to be judged successful or unsuccessful. You can see this in Aikido groups as well when they try to apply their various throws and pins in all situations and on all opponents. It's the same kind of mistake in reasoning and the same kind of ignorance in the use of universal principles. If you have a pinning technique like Ikkyo and it functions, it functions under particular conditions. It's the relationship between the technique and those particular conditions that mark what is universal, meaning that technique will function every time those conditions present themselves, no matter where you are or when you are. But to take Ikkyo outside of those particular conditions is to not understand the principle of Ikkyo or even the rationale of universals. And this is important because oftentimes Musashi is thought to be a kind of rebel, a kind of person who rejects the past, but here he is on point number one, and he's exactly the opposite. What his criticisms are of these other arts are not their blind attachment to universal principles, but rather their misunderstanding of them. I think this is something that every deshi has to address. I recently got an email request to enter one of our trial memberships. And the person made a statement of, I don't know what to expect. And I found myself answering her saying, that's probably best. that usually one of the largest obstacles to the beginner is expectation. And what I mean by that is in our expectations, we hold all our assumptions, but these are assumptions based out of an absence of training. And so they cannot be correct. They cannot bring us insight. What they'll bring us instead is interpretation. And interpretation in and of itself is already a kind of deviation. 
and all deviation is but ignorance. So as we train, we need to get to the heart of each thing. We need to train in terms of principle. And in particular, in terms of universal principles. We don't train for ikkyo or nikkyo or aikido kihon or even an artistic style. The goal is to move past these things, to see these things as superficial, low-level, and to find behind these things these timeless universal principles. Back to the piece. Number two. I sought not pleasure for pleasure's sake. Recently I wrote on our Facebook page about how much time we waste with entertainment. It kind of goes like this in its reasoning. The more you train, the more skilled you'll be. It's a law. The less you train, the less skilled you'll be. By extension then, time dedicated to training and time dedicated to things outside of training are going to be problematized as part of your practice. Any athlete that wants to compete at a national or international level is already doing this. In Budo, as modernity has creeped in, we have this weird concept of kind of like Gold's Gym or 24-hour fitness. You kind of go when you can. As if this law of investment and return is not really relevant. In fact, it is. And in fact, it's probably more relevant as activities or skill sets like the martial arts is oftentimes a lot more complicated than some sports we might play. But training has taken on this kind of model. I, I am personally thoroughly against it. The minimum goal of training should be daily practice. And so you're going to look for all the ways that you're wasting time. Because you're trying to look for more time that you can put towards your training.
And if you were, for example, in a monastic system, especially a historical one, every moment of your day would be dedicated toward your practice. It would be prescribed for you. And that manner of commitment and dedication was held and proven to be viable. due to the simple fact that it, more than any other way, obeyed the rule of investment and return. Now, in modern-day martial arts, you, in most cases, you don't have this kind of temple prescription for your day. We live outside of the dojo. But this fact doesn't take away the utility of the law of investment and return. And so you need to look for all the places that you are wasting time, that you could have time to put toward your training. And when you do that, you're going to see that there is this weird, almost obsession with being entertained. Obviously, it's connected to things like the internet and smartphones and just the convenience of constant entertainment, constant distraction from investing in one's training. But it's not thought of in any kind of negative way. It's par for the course. It's normal in our society to be and to spend so many hours being distracted, entertained. We have games around it, Trivial Pursuit. We have social media sites and websites that are just out there telling you what the Hollywood stars are doing what movies are coming out, what people think of the movies. There's an entire industry worth billions of dollars around the fact that human beings feel a need to be entertained. So if you were in a high-level sports team or you were in a serious dojo, sooner or later, somebody who's already gotten through this phase is going to tell you you're not training enough, you need to uh, put more into your practice, you're not committed enough, David Goggins is going to berate you because you're just holding yourself back. And when you get to that level, it does sound, at least to the outsider, quite monastic. Training becomes a kind of asceticism. Which, of course, I feel it should be. But then people will often go, Well, I've seen you laugh. Or even... I'm not sure I want to live like that. 
And I think Musashi is getting to that point here. The level of commitment that I'm talking about or the kind of asceticism that I'm talking about is not the absence of pleasure or even the absence of entertainment. It is an absence of the need, of the obsession with, or the addiction to pleasure, entertainment, happiness. That an addiction to these things is what the problem is. Many of us, especially children and adults that are still childish, want training to always be pleasurable and that at our first sign when it is not is the only sign we require to know we should quit. My experience would suggest that you're not really training until the pleasure stops. Until Aikido stops being entertaining for you, you're not really training. It's quite obvious in children, they'll come at first, it's quite fun, it's new. And who cannot like new things? What is commitment and discipline if it is not in some part, in some way, a matter of no longer needing novelty? But the kids will start their program like that and eventually the training becomes more difficult because it requires higher skill sets and they run into this law of investment and return and it stops being pleasurable for them. Of course, the master knows now's the time. Now is the time to increase your commitment level. And all the ill you're feeling now will go away. But what most people do is they begin and continue this practice, this addiction towards pleasure. And they go from one thing to the other. And they continually shift directions as soon as something stops pleasing them. This is one sure way of forfeiting control of one's life. One sure way of developing a victim mentality because life is going to always shift between what is pleasing and what is not. And if you have to always chase the greener pasture, you are going to be a victim of life. So yes, Budo is an asceticism. 
And as such, Buddha is not the absence of pleasure, but the purifying of oneself of the addiction to pleasure. Back to the piece. Number three. I harbored no biased feelings. This is written in 1645. In a culture not partial to what we consider Western rationality. And yet, here he's speaking of bias. He's talking about his efforts to continually have an open mind and to practice non-attachment towards oneself, even at the level of idea and understanding. Of course, this is key for anyone who wants to master something. Because as Shoshin is a kind of ideal in Budo, the beginner's mind, the opposite of that is surety. Surety is antithetical to mastery. And so a kind of constant surveillance of one's thinking for bias is part of mastery. Rob Lethem is a multi-time world champion competitive shooter. And he's probably nearing the end of his career and he's recently starting to uh, share openly his point of view of things. And kind of like Musashi, it's not going to be what everyone else is doing. If it was what everyone else was doing, there'd be more, he'd have more competition. But a very simple thing he does is 180 degrees opposite from what the crowd is doing. And his reasoning exposes the bias that is keeping other people's other people from competing with him. So in the shooting sports that he competes in, the idea is a mixture of shooting accurately and quickly. You get certain scores according to certain formulas, but the person who shoots the most accurately and the quickest is going to be the winner. And when it comes to 
speed and accuracy, most people are talking about a balance. It's, and, and that balance is forfeited to some sort of philosophical abstraction where no one can point out to it. You don't know it until you don't have it. In other words, if you're shooting too fast that you're now shooting, if you're, if you're shooting at a certain speed that you're now shooting inaccurately, then you are shooting too fast. You need to slow down. Now, that does not make sense in terms of the sport. It only makes sense from the unsaid criteria of how to increase accuracy, which itself that question only makes sense within this posited premise that there is a balance that must be sought between speed and accuracy. Meaning, for example, if I slow down so I can shoot more accurately, while I might shoot more accurately, I will not win the contest because my shooting score is slower. So somehow in the bias of balance, people have lost sight that the whole equation was attempting to answer, how do I win this competition? And from Rob's point of view, the very moment you say shoot slower, this can't be right. You don't ever want to shoot slower. Counter positions or support, you know, counter positions to rob or support for this balance of speed and accuracy come from the commonly observed fact that people, when they move their finger fast, they move the gun off its side alignment. And so, therefore, you can't move your finger fast. Well, again, if you're trying to win this competition, while that might be true, it is not valid in its thinking because you're going to lose. You're going to shoot too slow. Rob comes at it in a much more practical way, saying that the problem isn't that the trigger finger moved the gun. The problem is that the gun remains movable in the shooter's grip. He's basically saying if you can't move the gun, then it doesn't matter what you're doing with your finger. And he can kind of take this to an objective level. Let's put a firearm in a vice and let's move that trigger as fast as we can and it'll shoot in the same spot every time as long as the gun doesn't move. So Rob's solution is, why don't you learn how to not let the gun move? Then you can move your trigger finger as fast as you want. It'll still be an accurate shot. So Rob's not working with a balance of speed and power. He's working with maximum speed. And maximum grip integrity.
But this idea of balance has been existing in Western thinking for a long time that to many people, it always makes sense. Until you look a little further and you start violating some basic principles. I cannot shoot faster if I am shooting slower. I think Aikido is filled with this kind of thinking too. And I don't doubt that swordsmanship and jiu-jitsu in Musashi's day was also filled with this. And that the person who moves beyond this, the person who moves to the point of universal principles, is the person who is constantly on guard for assumptions that they held without thinking them through. Constantly on guard for one's own bias. In some of the earlier podcasts on how to run a traditional dojo, I point some of these out. The assumptions in seminars, the assumptions of rank. They're all based upon a bias that is going unobserved and unquestioned. And so what makes no sense, what can never be true, is thought of as true. In our dojo, sometimes what I observed in the same way that people today can come into the dojo and be quite out of shape or physically weak and our programming now requires that we assist them in becoming fit and strong I have noticed too that many people today have not been trained in philosophical argumentation or in critical thinking. And we have had to hold discussions and various types of philosophical exercises because that is how important this self-reflection is in terms of one bias, one's biases. You have to be able to expose them in order to continue to progress Number four, I thought lightly of myself and profoundly of the world. To me, this speaks of humility. This speaks of the benefit of learning how to get out of one's own way. We've had earlier podcasts on this. This is extremely important. We already mentioned Shoshin. We already mentioned not having expectations. And all of this is really about what was going on or what he's listing in point three is you can get in your own way. You will be your biggest obstacle. 
And the best thing you can do for yourself is to think lightly of yourself. It's quite contrary to the egocentric. Oftentimes we talk about self-reflection in our dojo. And what I find is people's self-reflections go something like this. Well, what do I feel right now? Okay, I feel X. Therefore, it is X. The acknowledgement of what they're feeling is somehow simultaneously the beginning and end of their self-reflection. This is not done by people who think lightly of themselves. They can go deeper. Why do I feel that way? What is lending itself towards the manifestation of this feeling? And what is my part in all that is being manifested? When we have a trial period now, when I first started teaching, probably like anybody who runs or is trying to run any kind of elite level activity, you're trying to look for those candidates, you know, the ones that you think will make it. They're probably in some way some, some crazy reflection of yourself because you made it so they must be able to make it the closer that you can see yourself in them. But what I've found over the years is you just can't tell. I've heard this say, said too about the seals and buds. You can't tell who's going to make it. They have huge people dropping out, national level athletes, Olympic athletes dropping out. And you just don't know. I have seen every level coming up on 40 years. I have seen every level of athlete and of disciplined person quit Budo. It has got me thinking that in some ways Budo in its slow burn, in its unrelenting burn, and in how it finds your deepest, most unsaid fears. That it has got to be one of the most difficult undertakings anyone can ever do. The capacity to daily come face to face with one's fears and to have them generated through human versus human violence. It just makes people quit, want a break. And if there is a constant if, if there is one where, as a teacher, I might find and allow myself a little hope that this person will make it, 
It's that they think lightly of themselves. That they show and practice humility. And if there's one guarantee that confidently, confidently allows me to say this person is going to quit, it is the absence of this. And my internal assessment is that the, the more egocentric this person is, the faster they will quit. So I always see humility as a gift one gives to oneself. The person who truly wants to learn the art is going to daily give themselves humility so that they can keep on training, so that they don't sabotage themselves and quit. I've never seen anyone quit but the egocentric. So play the odds and get humble. It's much easier. Number five. I succumb not to greed for the duration of my life. Now obviously, there's no historical context here. As I said, these are just reflection points. So these are just windows into my own path. But I think, again, what you're seeing is a master telling his students or laying before his students a trail of breadcrumbs whereby he says, I went this way. You may find it helpful. And so if you look, already we're seeing several things on how do I train more? How do I help myself train more? How do I help myself train correctly? How do I stop doing things that make me train less or make me train incorrectly? That is what this list here too is talking about. And greed is one of those things that infringes upon our capacity to train. Because greed... A lust as a lust for pleasure, as a lust for material things, can cause us to compromise. And if there is one meaning to the path walked alone, the title of this work, it is to walk without compromise. So I've been in schools before I had my own. People pass every test. No one ever fails a test because there's a commercial motivation 
Oh, they'll quit if I fail them. I already collected the testing fee and the belt fee. Nobody's ever expelled, almost no matter what they do. Those things being wrong or unfair or disharmonious or even dangerous because there's cash involved. So all integrity is traded for this greed. But the problem is that integrity, through things like consistency and an absence of contradiction and an absence of hypocrisy, is a marker of spiritual maturity, and spiritual maturity is a marker of insight into the way. And so it's very important that you cannot be bought and sold. That you are who you are because you follow universal principles. That you are not who you are out of greed or out of gain. Number six, I held no regrets for past deeds. Obviously, especially in the case of Musashi, this cannot mean that I never had anything in my past that is negative. This is more referencing the fact that the Master is a work in progress. Something that lends itself to the position that this summary of his, of his way is not written until one week before his death. It's also a positive statement on mistakes. Yes, I will have made mistakes, but they all become markers for the way and the very means of my improvement. The lack of, reg of regret comes from the fact that you worked on yourself following those mistakes. In our dojo, when we do something difficult, I'll always have those students every once in a while that get all upset with themselves for mistakes they made, for things they couldn't do, as we kicked it up a notch. And I always think, that is so different from me. I never experienced that level of self-frustration. It, it was because I didn't have time for it. If this spinning back kick caused me to lose my balance, I would never 
give it the kind of finality wherein that moment counted for anything. It was just the last rep before my next one. If I kept missing certain shots, it didn't say anything about who I was. It just told me what I needed to do now. And all of my emotional energy that might have been self-frustration is just put in a continuation of the next rep followed by the next rep. And so if you look at this inversely, when you see this self-frustration, what do you see? You don't see them continuing to train. And this goes to what I am trying to say Musashi's talking about here, that he's giving advice on how to work the investment return law. To have regrets that you get hung up on is ultimately to stop training. Just keep working. Just keep doing the work. Truly be what you truly are, a work in progress. Get up the next day. Start it all over again. Look for any time you're wasting and get rid of it and apply it to the training. Give every rep your full attention. Get every detail. Now pick up the speed. Now pick up the intensity. If you lose detail, slow back down. Get the detail. Now pick it back up. Make sleep and eating and your understanding of the world all conducive to finding more time to put into your training. And you will have no time for regret. Number seven, I was never jealous of others over matters of good and evil. Same thing. Wasting time and energy living a life wherein you compare yourself to others is going to decrease your investment in your own training. So you don't do it. Where you are is only relative to where you were and to where you want to be. If you're in a shooting competition, you don't have to hear the times of the other athletes. You don't even need to hear your time. You just go as fast and as accurately as you can go. If someone's doing this technique better than you, it has nothing to do with you. 
you already are looking to increase your time investment. You're already constantly on the guard for wasted time and wasted aspects of self, be it in greed or addiction to pleasure. And this is just one more. Addiction to the comparison of others. In some ways, as Buddha is a path to awakening and thus a path to liberation, of course it liberates us from pleasure and greed. But this one is so powerful, so freeing, and so conducive to our overall health and wellness. This freedom from judging oneself in light of judging another. In some ways, this can be the very definition of spiritual maturity. Yet we spend day after day, moment after moment, wondering what others are thinking about us, how much, when, That a free moment, a pure moment, is almost impossible. It is constantly coming to us in this sort of self-criticism. And it is ultimately self-defeating. And it robs us emotionally of so much energy that we could and should be putting towards our next rep. Number eight. In all things, I never despaired over parting. I see this as going back to number one, where he saw himself as consistent with the universal principles discovered by his time. One of those being that everything is impermanent. Everything is in a constant state of change, of birth and death. And despair in the face of that is a kind of lack of adapting to reality. 
I imagine his life as anyone today can. He must have seen people in despair over lost love, past relationships, the passing of loved ones. He must have thought, how strange. He must have wondered, what were they imagining? And I think in this point, you really see how deeply the master must hold his or her convictions. Because there is something natural to despair over love. And if not natural, at least intuitive. Something common, something we come to expect. But here the master, in the holding of his or her principle, will hold themselves distinct, even on something like this. And all of us who will practice despair over lost love will become strange to him or her. It's quite, quite interesting because it tells us that at some level the master knows she is weird. You know, when people... look to join our dojo, I always tell them, please make sure you go see the other schools. I think we have seven now in our area. So much for Aikido not being popular. <laughs> and I tell them that because I really do feel that they're probably more suited at one of the other schools. Because I know we're the weird ones. I know daily training is the way it should be, but I know most hold no such view. I know a reconciliation of fear brought about by human versus human violence is at the very heart of the self-technology that is Budo. And I know that most do not hold that view. I know we're the weird ones. I know that you need to be strong and you need to be fit 
And I know that the dichotomy between fighting, skill, and spiritual maturity is a false dichotomy. And I know the other schools do not feel that way. I know we're the weird ones. I know Aikido is not captured by its Kihon Waza. I know Aikido is more than that. But I know the other schools define the art by its tactical architectures. I know we're the weird ones. So I tell these people, you really need to go see the other schools. They have rank, they have federation, allegiance. You can train when you want. You can do what you want. It is easier to train in a place that fits you. Then in a dojo where you are expected to fit yourself. We have a sign over the door in Latin. To be changed, not to change. Do you change yourself, you don't change the dojo. We are the weird ones. And so it's, it can't be an easy thing for a teacher to tell his young deshi I remain consistent with the law of impermanence and you should do the same. Because it's so contrary to what we all do and to what we all see. But again, that is why we are not the master. I remember reading this old, no, it was a documentary. It was a documentary on uh, traditional Chinese Kung Fu. And they were interviewing these teachers who were having difficulties finding errors. And they were all around the table. They were talking back and forth, so they weren't answering questions. And, you know, conversation gets more freer when you're just feeling like you're talking to peers and friends. That's how this conversation was going. And one of them made the point that it was conventional wisdom that you had to find your master at the right time of their life, almost like a bodhisattva ideal. 
They were talking about if you if you found the master late in their life where they were full-blown masters, they just don't make sense to you. So you got to kind of find them when they still have one foot in our reality. That's very interesting. Number nine, I never held malice towards others, nor they toward me. That's a difficult one. Maybe malice, not holding malice towards others. Of course, that's difficult. But you can't again see... Going back to number seven, I was never jealous of others over matters of good and evil. I never held malice towards others. Again, he's not wasting energy on that. Nor they toward me. Well, I, I'm going to say I doubt that, but I think he probably had his share of enemies. But I think what he's trying to get at is that he could get along with people. Which kind of happens naturally when you're not living in comparison to people. Especially if you live a life of service. There's going to be way more people that appreciate you than don't. But to be free of it, I don't know. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt though. He is the master. Ten, I steered clear of the path to attachment. Well, we already went into that one. But attachment is everywhere. And I think one of the points of Aikido training is to develop skill in detaching. I think Aiki itself comes from the skill of detaching. And I don't refer, I'm not, I don't mean detaching here only in terms of an idea. It's not going with the flow. Going with the flow is a kind of prioritization and division of the mind from the body. This detaching draws no distinction between mind and body. And so detaching is going to happen at a cellular level as well. Your muscles, your nerves, your skin, all lets go. Eleven, I held no preferences for anything. Of course, this is just the inverse of ten. Twelve, I cared not where I lived. Meaning, I didn't have a detachment. I didn't have an attachment for where I wanted to live. I had no preference where I wanted to live. Meaning, I took the, the practice of detaching and the practice of non-preference to even where I was living.
He was accepting of all things. I sought not the taste of fine food, number 13. This is a worldly thing. And worldly things are attachment things. So in number five, I succumb not to greed. And number 13, I sought not the taste of fine food. Number 12, I did not care where I lived. Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk, has a profound statement that I have found very useful over the years, and that is proximity to God is proportionate to one's distance from the world. So whenever you have a way like Budo, you're going to see that. These are things of the world. He did not seek pleasure for pleasure's sake. He did not succumb to greed. He was not jealous of others. He held no malice towards others. He did not despair the parting of things and of people. He steered clear to, of attachment. He held no preference. He did not care where he lived. He did not seek the taste of fine food. This is a man that is generating distance between himself and the way of the world. Between the way of the world and the way of the warrior. 14. I possess no old items of historical consequence to pass on. The same thing. Consistent with the law of impermanence. 15. I adhered not to superstitious beliefs. He's very rational. Number three, I harbored no biased feelings. Number one, I did not infringe upon the way of successive generations. He was consistent with universal principles. So he's not going to be into superstition. He's a man of reason. It's not some sort of loose religious code to why he distanced himself from the way of the world. There was a practical end to it. And this is the same way that Merton makes his statement. There's a reason to it. The way of the world is the way of distraction. It's the way of non-commitment. It's the way of attachment and delay and half-ass and weakness and pleasure-seeking.
And if you're going to get good at the way of the warrior, you're going to have to get good at detaching from the way of the world. Oftentimes in Aikido, and strangely, I do, well, I do not draw a distinction between religious worldview and a rational worldview. Those two are not contrary to me. But I know there's many Aikido practitioners who come to the art as a kind of almost anti-religious and one of the things that you can note is has become very different from when the founder practice is this just the absence of commentary on the divine there has been a thorough secularization of the art and yet I found I find people constantly practicing with talismanic ideas. For example, Aikido is the way of peace or the way of harmony. Okay, how do you do that? I'm going to keep doing Ikkyo. Why does that work? And you'll find they'll have no answer. Something in Ikkyo like like the way a cross scares off a vampire. That's what I mean by a talisman. There's something magical in Ikkyo that makes us beings of harmony. That makes us nonviolent. It's just, it's in the technique itself. All you got to do is the technique. How do you know they think that? Well, what else are they doing? They just do techniques. So clearly the technique has some sort of talismanic power. Clearly they adhere to superstitious beliefs. Sixteen, apart from weapons, I sought not superfluous trappings. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's separating himself from the way of the world. No fine food, no money. But I'm going to need a good sword. That's how it goes. I think that's, that's interesting. He tells his student that. Hey, be as monk-like as you can, but when it comes time to weapons, buy the best weapon you can. All that money you're saving through your asceticism, buy some good shit when it comes to weapons. I know when I teach people firearms, I try and tell people, okay, you, you're going to need this. 
Let's just start with handgun. And what I found in the beginning was that people will buy a nice handgun, then they buy decent holsters and mag pouches and then a crappy belt. Now, that fine handgun is not too deployable. And those decent holsters and mag pouches are just crap because the bell is crap. So I started making a list. And I, I could see early on that people weren't of my same mind, which is very much akin here. Hey, spend as much as you can on your weapons. So I had to give like a budget spectrum. Here's top of the line, best recommendation. Here's middle budget and here's low budget. Don't go below low budget. And it's reasonably priced. It's just not the best, which I think you should buy. And still, I still have people who will go off the list. It's hilarious. So at our dojo over the over the years when it comes to the traditional gear, uh I don't let people buy independently because they'll buy crap. To help them we offer everything with the wholesale discount. We don't mark anything up. And so they really have no reason because it actually costs less nine out of ten times. If they go through the dojo, there's no profit made on it, but they don't show up with crap. They don't show up with Joe or Bulkin that are going to break or Gi that are going to rip or Hakama that are going to rip. But it had to be done because if it was left to them, they're always like, how do I, uh, you know, let me go be a foodie all weekend long. Oh, I think I can get this Hakama made out of paper towels. This will work. Oh, it costs less. Seventeen. I spurned not death in the way. So this is part of his consistency to the universal principle. So the universal principle of impermanence has to include your own personal extinction. I think a person can look at Budo as nothing more than a technology in the preparation of one's own death. I think if you keep that mindset, you'll go, you're going to go just as far as anyone else might using any other kind of access point. I think daily we should meditate 
on our own death, I think daily we should practice releasing our own body. Detaching from our own flesh. I think every time you're on the mat, you should be ready to die. I think every time you leave your home, especially if you're a cop, you should say bye to your children and your spouse and all the people you love. You should tell them you love them. I think your death should be constantly on your mind. And I think if you do that, aside from preparation, you also have the practical means or the practical end of addressing the investment and return ratio, meaning most of the time when we're procrastinating, we're holding this unsaid view that this is going to last for forever when it's not. Every moment within the law of impermanence is a miracle, is unique, and will never return. And any time and every time we treat those moments as being different than this, we are wasting our time. Eighteen, I sought not the possession of goods or fiefs for my old age. Again, consistency with the law of impermanence. Nineteen, I respected the deities and Buddha without seeking their aid. This is the way of self-reliance. I think outside of the mystical traditions, it's not uncommon for beings like God or the Buddha to take on a kind of genie role. Where they're kind of out there and we kind of are here and we kind of ask them for things and they give them to us like a genie. I remember listening to debate at an atheist was talking to a minister and he was saying people ask God for things all the time and they don't get it if God was omnipotent and loving people would get it Therefore, I do not believe there is a God. And the minister answered back without skipping a beat. I don't believe there's a God like that either. <laughs> because God's not a genie, nor is the Buddha.
And for the warrior, the person who is self-reliant, the idea of a wish-granting genie in the sky feels like a kind of weakness, a kind of frailty, and even a kind of dishonoring of said being. A kind of disrespecting. 20. I abandon my body but not my honor. Twenty-one, I never drifted from the way of combat strategy. So twenty to me is about that integrity I mentioned, that absence of contradiction and hypocrisy, that marker of consistency, that equivalency between inside and out, that adherence to higher principle. And the body, which is part of that law of impermanence, is very much abandoned in Budo. While in some ways it is an end in our training, it is very much a means in our training. It is abused and tortured and made to feel pain and broken and injured and cut. And it is done so so that we can develop the quality and see the quality of our heart-mind. And that quality is measured by how proximal I can position myself to these universal principles in the face of this physical pain. The Budoka knows, as any warrior does, that virtue in time of peace is really not virtue. That virtue exists really only under conditions where most of us will falter. Times of war, times of violence, times of pain, 
times of personal extinction. And when we can do that, when we can maintain virtue under those conditions, then we feel that we are capable of never straying from the way. Until then, we're doubtful, we wonder, we're not sure, so we work. We work to increase the odds that we will not falter. This is the way of the warrior. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.